Two more weeks in Exodus, and then we'll be done with Exodus. And we're going to go right into Leviticus. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> we wouldn't do that to you. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Um, and if you're using that Bible, th- we're on page 73. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can take that home with you. All right, that's our gift to you. You can have that. Now, two weeks ago, we were in Exodus chapter 32. And in Exodus chapter 32, we saw the infamous golden calf incident, right? Uh, we, we saw that uh, Israel, had, in, in their hearts, they had turned back to Egypt, right? And we talked about idolatry and how subtly it, it creeps in in ways that we don't quite realize, in ways that we can't articulate. And unbeknownst to us, we can find ourselves giving ourselves to idols other than God. We can find ourselves doing good things, good, godly, righteous things, and putting our hope in those things rather than Christ, and that's idolatry, right? Um, so I, I want to ask you, from a couple weeks ago, maybe, maybe you've forgotten, I don't know, I have slept since then, but uh, were, you, were you able to diagnose any idols in your life from that, from, from thinking through that? Were you able to see anything in your heart that didn't need to be there? Because I know that I did, I certainly did, and, and if you didn't, um, then maybe I would propose that you didn't really take anything that the Word of God had to say seriously. and Perhaps the idol that you failed to diagnose in your life is maybe your own self-righteousness or your own pride. But if you did diagnose some idols in your life, then I pray that this sermon today will help you to understand what to do with that. I know that the sermon that I preached a couple weeks ago, it was, it was very philosophical, it was very introspective and, and, and all of that, but, but today we're going to look practically what do we do, what do we do. So if you would please pray with me and then we'll begin. Father, we need your help this morning. I need your help to speak. I need your help to preach. I need your help to explain. God, we all need your help to understand. Would you open our eyes to see to open our ears to hear. God, give us willing hearts this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So my assigned text to preach to you is Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34, right? The, the, those two chapters. Now those two chapters, obviously, they follow chapter 32, which means that these chapters continue the narrative that we, that we started in chapter 32. In 32, we saw the idolatry that the Israelites engaged in. But in 33 and 34, we see God's reaction, the Israelites' reaction to what, what happens. And we see the process by which Israel was forgiven of their idolatry and they were restored to a right relationship with God. So in essence, what we see here in, in verses 33 and 34 is the gospel. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is the gospel. What we see is a threefold process of, of how the Israelites were restored. Now, I'm going hardcore Southern Baptist on you guys today, and I've got a three-point sermon, and they're all alliterated, okay? So the first point, you have to recognize your ruin. Recognize your ruin. If you, if you uncovered any idols in your life from that, from that sermon that we preached two weeks ago, or if in your, or in your study of the Word or in your daily meditations with God, you've uncovered some things that don't need to be there, the first step that you need to take if you're going to rid those things from your life and, and be restored to a right relationship with God is you need to recognize your ruin. Look at verse 1 in Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Notice that God doesn't say, I brought these people. He's saying, Moses, these are your people. 
whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up amongst you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now notice what God is saying to Israel here, that despite their idolatry, God is still going to be faithful to give them three things. Okay, look at verse 1. Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. So God is saying, despite your idolatry, I'm still going to give you my promises. You're still going to have my promises. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So despite the idolatry that you have committed against me, I'm going to give you my promises, and I'm going to give you my protection. I'm going to protect you. And then, and then verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Despite your idolatry, I'm going to give you my promise. I'm going to give you my protection. And I'm going to give you my paradise. You're still going to receive all of these things. But also notice what God withholds. Because this makes all the difference. Continuing on in verse 3. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. God is withholding his presence. He's giving them his promises. He's giving them his protection. He's giving them paradise even. But he's withholding his presence. Now how did the people react to that news? Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. The people of Israel considered this a disastrous word. They received what God had said to them not as a blessing, but as a curse. Now how astounding is that? They're going to receive His promises. They're going to receive His protection. They're even going to receive paradise. They're going to go into the promised land that God had given them. But when God said He was going to withhold His presence, they realized that without the presence, the promised land wouldn't be paradise. It would be hell. They recognized their ruin Their sin had resulted in God withdrawing His presence from them, and they wept in mourning. Now, the sad thing about this is that I think a lot of us here would be totally content with that kind of arrangement. Oh, God's going to give me His promises. God's going to give me His protection, and and I'm still going to get to go to paradise, but, you, you know, God's presence is going to be there. That's okay. I'm totally fine with that. I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we'd be totally content with this. And in fact, that's probably the Christian life that many of us are living right now. And we're perfectly happy with it. We're claiming his promises. We're claiming his protection. We're claiming heaven whenever we die, but we give no credence to his presence in our lives whatsoever. We don't commune with him like we should. We don't pray like we should. We don't read our Bibles like we should. We don't fast like we should. We do not spend the time with the Lord that we should. And I think if we all evaluated our lives, we'd see that we're just a little bit too comfortable with claiming God's promises, protection, and expecting paradise, but we are ignoring his presence here and now. Now, there are many reasons why we do this, and, but in, in, in we could, I could preach a whole sermon on why we do that, but in keeping with the context of the scripture that God has led us to and the lessons that we learned a couple of weeks ago from chapter 32, the biggest reason why we do this is because we've given the privilege of God's presence away to idols. 
We've shoved God out of our hearts and out of our minds and out of our lives, and we're expecting him to be okay with that. And what God told Israel and what he's telling you is that if you don't want him, then you won't get him. And if you don't get him, then you know what else you don't get? Heaven. You don't get it. You won't get it. You know what makes heaven heaven? Ezekiel 48, verse 35, in speaking of heaven, says this, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Because that's what makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven so glorious and so wonderful is that God is there. Not that we get to see our loved ones Right? Not that we get to live forever. Not even that we're going to be free from sin. What makes heaven wonderful is that God is there. His presence. We get to see all of His unmitigated glory forever. We will get to soak it in for eternity. The essence of the gospel is not that you get forgiveness of sins. It's not even that you get heaven. It's that you get God and if that doesn't excite you, then you have totally missed the gospel. You've totally missed what, what all of this is about. This is why the Israelites received God's word as a disastrous word. You can have everything that this world has to offer, but if you don't have God and you don't have his presence, the promised land is no longer paradise. It might as well be hell because that's exactly what hell is. Now, the, the doctrine of hell is a... It's a difficult doctrine. It's a difficult doctrine to discuss. It's a, it's a difficult doctrine to understand. It's a, it's a difficult doctrine to preach. But we can't ignore it. We've become a bit confused, I think, about the doctrine of hell. The typical represent, representation of hell is that it's, it's, it's a lake of fire, right, that the unrepentant will be tossed into to burn forever in flames of agony and torment. But, but what I want you to know is that it's much, much worse worse than that. If you take everything that the Bible has to say about hell literally, then hell becomes pretty confusing, right? It's a, it's a lake of fire with flames, but it's also a place of darkness where there is no light. It's a place of eternal destruction and death, but you're, you're, there is no death, right? You're going to live forever in heaven. But what's even more confusing when you read the Bible is, is the place of the presence of God in hell. Is, is he there? Is he not there? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says this, They, which is the unrepentant, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. You see, what makes hell hell is that God is not there. That's why what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. Now, to understand exactly why this is so bad, we need to look at a couple of other verses. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says this, that God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Have you ever read that and been like, wait, what does that mean? God is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So we know that God is the Savior of those who believe eternally right? That he saves us eternally and that we're going to be ushered into his presence whenever we die to live with him forever. But how is God the savior of all men, even if they don't believe? Well, he's the savior of all men, 
temporarily, right? That's got to be what that means. That God is, in this moment, he is saving all men in a temporal sense. Now, what theologians call this is the common grace of God. He saves those who believe eternally, but he saves those who don't believe temporarily. This is his restraining grace, his common grace. Because the, the, what the Bible teaches is that the soul that sins shall die. The second that you sin, you deserve death. But that doesn't happen, does it? God saves you in that moment. He restrains his wrath. He restrains his anger. He's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And we see an example of this in Romans 1. If you read through Romans 1, you'll read that, that, that there are some people that they, they, they gave themselves to sin. And what do we read? We read God gave them over to their sin. Now, if God gave them over to their sin, then what is the implication of that? That God was restraining, right? That God was restraining. That God was keeping sin from unleashing itself in their heart and consuming them. And the, but the people, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They said, we would rather worship the creature rather than the creator. And God said, okay, I'm going to hand you over. I'm going to give you over to this sin. And so it says that God handed them over. He gave them over to a debased mind. He gave them over to corrupt hearts. He gave them over to sin, and sin had its way with them. Now, you see what the wrath of God is? It's the withdrawing of his grace. It's the withdrawing of that restraining of sin. It's, it's the wrath of God in hell. It's the fact that his presence is not going to be there to restrain sin anymore. And an imperishable body, yes, you will burn. You will burn with lust that will continue to get stronger and stronger and stronger and you will not be able to satisfy it. You will burn with an anger that gets stronger and stronger and stronger and you will not be able to quell it. You will burn with a pride that says, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this forever and ever and ever and it gets worse and worse and worse and it will never stop. I'm afraid that we have reduced the horror of hell to flames and pain and torment when it is, is, is much more worse than that. We are left alone, utterly alone in our sin and sin will have its way with us for eternity because God won't be there to restrain it. But in another way, his presence will be there. His presence will be there. And man, this is, this is the clincher for me here. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11 says this. They will be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. And those who are in hell will be tormented in the presence of Jesus Christ. But you see, the reason that this is torment is because those in hell will not have the privilege of looking upon Jesus and seeing something that they enjoy. But forever, they will be filled not only with lust and anger and pride and the sin that consumes them forever, but also the continuous, unending remorse of seeing what they have rejected. This is what hell is. Do you understand now why the Israelites mourned when God took away his presence? Because without it, his life is meaningless. Without it, eternity is meaningless. Do you recognize your ruin apart from God? Apart from the presence of God in your life, do you see how much of an offense it is to God and to yourself 
when you give an idol precedence to God? Do you see why you need God? I pray and I hope that you do. So the first step, you have to recognize your ruin. Second step, you receive your redemption. You receive your redemption. Exodus 33, look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I might know what to do with you. So therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now it may not seem like it, but what the Israelites are doing here is repenting right? This is the first step in receiving your redemption, is repenting. Repentance is when you denounce your sin, you turn away from it, you turn toward Christ and to God, right? When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and their repentance began with mourning. They recognized their ruin, they recognized their sin, and they mourned, and this mourning led them to repentance. God told them, take off your ornaments so that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people stripped themselves of their ornaments. Now, ornaments is a reference to the jewelry and accessories that that the Israelites would wear. But do you see how, how that is significant that they had to remove that? What was the golden calf made of? It was their ornaments. It was the jewelry. Aaron said, take out the jewelry out of your ears and the accessories that you wear. Give me all the gold that you have and we're going to make this golden calf. The very thing that they idolized, they were removing. They were removing it from themselves. What they're doing is they're taking the measures needed to remove temptation and sin from their lives. The very thing that they idolize, they're getting rid of. And this leads us to a very important point about repentance. True repentance will always cost you something. It will always cost you something. If you struggle with the sin of pornography, and maybe you feel bad about it, right? You're mourning over that, but you are not taking the steps needed to rid yourself of that, then You're mourning, but you have not repented. You have not repented of that sin. If you struggle with overeating and gluttony, right, and maybe you feel bad about it, but but you aren't willing to deprive yourself that extra bite or that extra plate, then you have not repented. If you struggle with materialism and greed, and yeah, maybe you feel bad about that, but you are not willing to give up your stuff for the sake of finding a superior satisfaction in Christ, then you have not repented. And we could go on and on. We do this. We play these games. We feel bad about what we do, but we don't actually take the steps to stop the wickedness that we're involved in. And that's not repentance. We think repentance is just feeling bad about our sin, but that's not it. It will cost you something. It will always cost you something. And this makes complete sense of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-10. through 10. He says, And now I rejoice, Not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. If all you do is feel sorry for what you've done, but you never do anything about it, then you are experiencing worldly sorrow. And that sorrow will lead you to death. You will bust hell wide open with your pornography, with your food, and with your stuff. But if it is godly sorrow that you feel, then according to Paul, that kind of sorrow will produce a repentance without regret. Right? Meaning that the things that you give up, 
that what you turn from in your repentance, what you cut out of your life as a means of your repentance, you won't regret it. Because when you cast those idols out of your life, then you make war against them and you crush them, then that space is filled with the presence of God and you will truly see how cheap those idols were and how superior he is to everything that you were giving yourself to. So the first step in receiving your repentance, in receiving your redemption, is repenting. You must repent of your sin. You must make war against it. And you must do whatever it takes to rid it from your life. And the second step is faith. You must have faith. All throughout the scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, the the core proclamation of the gospel is this, repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. You hear this over and over. We just discussed repentance, but believe, believe what? Believe in Jesus, right? Now, the interesting thing about the Old Testament, where we're at in Exodus 33 and 34, is that although we don't see the full gospel laid out for us in exact detail that the New Testament gives us, we do see hints of it right? The gospel in the Old Testament is, is like a seed that was planted in Genesis, and then as you read the story of the Old Testament, you see the gospel seed begin to sprout and grow until it fully blossoms and blooms in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see it fully explained there. Now, the hints of the gospel that we see in Exodus 33 are really, really interesting. They're very numerous. <laughs> I could, again, I could preach a whole other sermon on that right there. Far too many to unpack in just this moment, but I want to point your attention to chapter 33 in verse 15. Look at verse 15. And he, that's Moses, said to him, he said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now, at this point, Moses is interceding for Israel. Right? If you were in small group, you learned a little bit more about what interceding is. But Moses is pleading to God on behalf of Israel not to leave them without his presence. He's recognized their ruin, and he is repenting. This, again, this is again part of their repentance, pleading with the Lord for forgiveness, basically, is what, is what Moses is doing here. Now, this obviously pleased the Lord, this request of Moses. It obviously pleased the Lord because look at what he says in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Now Moses' response is very interesting. Look what he says. Please, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God agrees to do so. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses asked God to show him his glory. God says, okay, I will. And the way that I will do that is by proclaiming my name to you and by being gracious and showing mercy. Now, he hasn't actually done this yet, right? He's just saying he's going to do it. He's only told Moses what he's going to do. So he tells Moses to climb back up the mountain, all right? Come back up to the Mount Sinai. This is where I'm going to show you. So look on over in chapter 34. You may have to turn the page. Look over in chapter 34 at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, this is God showing Moses his glory like he asked, okay? Look at this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Wow. 
This is the glory of God. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will be merciful to you. That's how God feels about you. He has mercy on you. He says, I will be gracious to you. That's how God acts towards you. He gives you things that you do not deserve. He isn't merely showing you steadfast love and faithfulness. He is abounding in it. This is his glory. This is the glory of God. Moses said, God, show me your glory. And this is what God says, my abounding love, my steadfast love for you. But we didn't finish reading the description, did we? We stopped halfway through. What we've seen is only part of the glory of God, namely his love. And a lot of us have reduced the glory of God to that one mere attribute. But God doesn't do that. He continues. This is also part of the glory of God. He says, but I will by no means clear the guilty. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So you see another aspect of God's glory is his justice. What makes God God is that he will not tolerate sin. He will not. He will by no means clear the guilty. So God's glory is that he has perfect love and that he has perfect justice. This is his glory. It says that Moses bowed his head immediately after he heard this and he worshiped God. And in response to Moses' worship, in verse 10, God renews the covenant that he made with Israel. He renews it. The repentance was complete. Israel has been restored to God. God renews the covenant that he has made with them. They recognize their ruin. They received their redemption. And they were made right with God through this. Now by Moses bowing in worship at what God told him about himself, he was putting his faith in the glory of God. And we are to do the same thing. Although we, we don't merely have to just take God's word that he is both perfect love and perfect justice. All we have to do is look at the cross and we can see that. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's perfect love is displayed at the cross of Christ. The crucified Lord hung on the cross for you, put there by God himself to pay the penalty for your sins. And you talk about abounding in love and grace, the darling of heaven crucified for you, for what you did. Perfect love And the Bible says that the cross of Christ also displayed his perfect justice as well. In Romans 3, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now that word propitiation means it is something that absorbs the wrath of God. That's what the word propitiation means, something that absorbs the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward to absorb his wrath by his blood, to be received by faith. God did this to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God had passed over former sins 
right? Remember, the people sinned and they weren't struck dead by God. You have sinned and you have not been struck dead by God. And at that moment on the cross, millennia and millennia and centuries and centuries of wrath against sin that God had stored up was unleashed upon His Son, upon Jesus Christ. On the cross, your sin had its way with Jesus Christ. It completely ravaged Him, tore Him to pieces. He was ravaged by your lust, your anger, your pride, your greed. He was smitten by God, cursed and stricken for your sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. He won't. This is who God is. Every single sin that has ever been committed will either be paid for by you in hell or by Christ on the cross. And it's your repentance and faith that determines whether you or Jesus will bear that punishment. Because you see, just mere repentance is not enough. It's not enough. You must also have faith. Faith in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Faith that it was enough. Faith in Jesus Jude, verse 5, says, Now I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's what Jude, verse 5, says. He says, I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. When the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, that was Jesus' doing. And what we've just seen is that Israel repented. But what this says is that some of them didn't have faith and they were destroyed. And if, because they didn't have faith. So now Jesus Christ, right now, he stands as your deliverer, ready to receive you if you will repent and put your faith in him. He stands as your deliverer. But there is coming a day, if you reject this, where he will no longer stand before you as your deliverer, he will stand before you as your judge. And he himself will sentence you to hell. And as we've just seen for eternity, you will have to gaze upon the beauty and the glory of what you have rejected, of what you have seen and said, no, I'm good. Forever you will be tormented. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna ask the band and and the ushers, if you go ahead, come on up. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper. And as they get ready, I'll finish out my last point, all right, Um, because it's brief. You recognize your ruin. Realize that a life without the presence of God is hell on earth, and it will be hell for eternity. You receive your redemption by repenting of your sin, and it will cost you something. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you a job. It may cost you opportunities. It may cost you money. It will cost you something. You repent of your sin, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You receive your redemption that God is offering to you today, right now. And then you reflect your Redeemer. That's the third, third point. You reflect your Redeemer. Exodus 34, verse 29. says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain... Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. If you recognize your ruin and then through repentance and faith, you receive your redemption, 
you will reflect your Redeemer. You see, it's only when you behold glory that you will reflect glory. And until your eyes have been opened to see the beauty of Jesus, then you will remain distracted by the idols in your life. And it's them that you will reflect. So you ask yourself, who or what am I reflecting? Am I reflecting Christ? Am I reflecting the world? And once you figure that out, you ask yourself, who am I reflecting this to? When people look at you, do they see Jesus or do they see the idols that you've put in his place? The Bible promises that for those who put their faith in Christ, they become a new creation. The old you has passed away and the new you will come. You will be remade, refashioned, and reformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Just like Moses, you will radiate the glory of God. Have you seen the glory of Jesus? Have you beheld it? Have you seen that today? Have you beheld the Son of God in his glory on the cross, perfectly displaying the love of God towards you, perfectly displaying the justice of God and that he bore the wrath that was due to your sin in his own body on the tree? Have you seen that? Because in a way, that's what this ceremony that, that we're about to partake in is, is meant to convey. The glory of Jesus is demonstrated in his death on the cross. So ushers, you can come up and get ready. We pass this out. And speaking of the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul says that for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is contained in this ceremony is a proclamation that the body of Christ was broken for me and the blood of Christ was spilled for me and that by taking this into myself, I am participating with Christ in his crucifixion, that I have been crucified with him and it is no longer I who live, but him who lives within me. And I want to warn those of you who enter into this moment lightly and flippantly that the Bible also says that therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord until you are sick of your sin and until you have forsaken it and you place your trust in Christ, you have no share in this. I want that to be clear. This goes for believer and non-believer alike. If you are harboring in your heart any unconfessed sin, then the scripture restricts you from participating in this. If you are an unbeliever, the scripture restricts you from partaking in this. If you are unwilling to do business with the Lord, if you are unwilling to repent of your sin, confess your faith in Christ, then please just let the tray pass when it comes to you. But now if you want to partake, but you have business to do, and this altar will be open. If you are a believer who needs to repent, this altar will be open. If you are an unbeliever who wants to repent and place your faith in Jesus for the first time, this altar will be open. Would you come? Jesus is inviting you. He's saying, I've taken care of everything. You don't have to bear the weight of that anymore. I will drink it. I will take it upon myself.